0: Recent polls show that the number of Americans attending religious services has now, for the first time, dropped below 50%. Are Americans becoming more rational, more scientific, more secular? uh, Or are they simply substituting one set of dogmas for another, uh, such as the dogma of identity politics? More and more commentators have noted that nominally secular Americans are exhibiting a strange sort of religiosity in their devotion to different political creeds. How are we to understand what's going on? Well, welcome to New Ideal Live, the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. My name is Ben Baer. I'm a fellow at ARI. Today, we're going to be discussing this topic, what to expect from an America without God. Joining me today is ARI senior fellow, Ilan Giorno. Hi, Ilan. Hey, Ben. So Ilan, um, but to get us into this discussion, maybe it's a good idea to take a look at what this, uh, some of these latest polls are actually telling us about the decline in traditional religiosity. What can you tell us?
1: Sure, so uh, looking at this issue, there are a number of ways people are measuring this. So there's a Gallup poll from March of this year, and it found that I think it was 47% of Americans said they belonged to a church or a synagogue or a mosque. And that figure, 47%, is down from uh, 50% two years ago and, get this, 70% from 1999. So that's not that far back, right? It's, what, 20 plus, 22 years or so? And the decline... Now, think of this as membership in a church or institution of of worship or something like that. So now this is... uh, it doesn't tell you that much. It's really a proxy, right? So it's interesting to kind of get into the phenomenon. One thing I would say is that the as much as the church membership, if could just think of it broadly like that, is going down. There's another figure that's been going up, um, and that is the uh, what they call nuns—people who don't associate with any sort of organized religion. N-O-N-E, not N-U-N. And that <laughs> that is, uh, which is an interesting thing, because it does that actually mean that people are less religious, or just that they don't want to be part of a, an institution of, of worship. Uh, the other thing that's interesting here it has it correlates with age. So one of the dimension of this is that church membership was seen um, to be of really closely tied to that. So 66% of uh, people who are characterized as traditionalists, uh, U.S. adults born before 1946, belong to a church. And that's in contrast to about 58% of baby boomers. And, and notice this decline, 50% of those in Generation X is my generation, I guess. And then it, it, it keeps dipping to 36% for people uh, thought of as millennials. So it's, it's another kind of dimension of this graph so as I said, I, I mean it's an interesting development, and it's a question of what does it actually mean, and what do you think of this, Ben? What what was your reaction when you saw these numbers?
0: Yeah, and I should mention that the the point that you made about the rise of the nuns n o n e s is important because you know one way you could interpret this is well people still identify with the religion they just don't go to church as much, but the fact that a lot of an increasing number of people, especially as they get younger, are not even identifying with the religion. Uh, I mean the Gallup. Article suggests that is that is one of the big factors driving this, and you know just on the face of it, you know coming from the perspective of uh, 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 someone who's I mean I am myself an atheist and and uh, uh, believer in uh, secular scientific philosophy, this would seem like a promising development. Um, religion encourages people to believe things uh, as a matter of blind faith, dogmatically. And so especially you might look at this data and think, well, it, maybe people are starting to realize what's wrong with that approach, and they, they want to be less dogmatic themselves. They don't want to identify with these dogmas. And uh, speaking from the perspective of morality, I mean religious in, religion encourages moral dogmas, especially the dogma of self-sacrifice. And you could interpret this to mean, well, people are thinking more about what the kinds of things that religious morality has demanded them. It's demanded that they, uh, give up their happiness and their relationships and their sex lives, et cetera. And they're saying, "No, uh, we reject that. We want to live uh, uh, for the sake of our own happiness and not take someone's dogma, dogmatic demand that we give it up." That's one way that you could interpret this, um, but uh, not necessarily the only way. Uh, there might be, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's, and and, and some commentators have su- suggested other ways.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, Ben, it's it's easy to look at this data. And if, if you're on the side of science and secular worldview, it's easy to say, oh, this is a great piece of news. But the, I think the real question here, and I think part of what I was fascinated by when I read into this topic, is what is actually the phenomenon? What is actually going on? And as you put it, people might still be religious, but not go to church. So it, it, is there really a bright spot here, what to make of it? Uh, and let's, maybe we should try to unpack that a bit. Why don't we uh, take that from there?
0: Yeah, and so especially since it's possible for somebody to be religious and still not go to church in a traditional sense, I mean, we should wonder, well, are there other ways in which they're going to church? In effect, it might not be involved sitting in pews or listening to preachers. Um, and it might not even involve the trappings of traditional religion, uh, but it might involve behavior that's still has many of the marks of that same kind of mindset. And this is one of the things that a lot of commentators have noted. There was a there was a controversy, in fact, just this week, just this past week, um, which was particularly notable because it involved one of the major secular humanist organizations uh, and its dealings with one of the major secular humanists, atheist public intellectuals. And I'm speaking here of the American Humanist Association uh, and they revoked the humanist of the War a year, uh, a, the humanist of the year award that had been given to Richard Dawkins, a prominent uh, atheist. Uh, the, the award was given to him back in 1996. Uh, the reason for the revocation is what's particularly noteworthy here. So it's not that uh, Richard Dawkins was caught up in some sex scandal, which has happened to at least one other. Uh, person who had their award revoked from the AHA. No, instead, it was a tweet that Richard Dawkins uh, put up recently. And I think we can put that uh, tweet up on screen. Uh, And it basically concerned uh, Dawkins. Dawkins was pointing out what he took to be a kind of double standard between the people who are Uh, advocates, supporters of uh, the rights of transgendered people and uh, those who support the idea that uh, transgendered people should be able to identify as whichever sex they like. The double standard between that on the one hand and the critics of what they call transracialism, the the people who say you don't get to choose your race. And this is concerning, this is something that came up in the controversy if you remember a few years back about Rachel Dolezal, who uh, was a, uh, uh, identified originally as a white person, but then tried to identify as a black person. And Dawkins is basically pointing out a lot of the same people say that uh, you should be able to identify as whatever sex you like, but not as whatever race you like. And he's, he suggested, and he argued, uh, that there is a kind of double standard here, that it's not clear why you get to do one and not the other. Uh, And the American Humanist Association, uh, which uh, presumably is sympathetic with the people who have this double standard, revoked his award on the grounds that this is just the latest case in which uh, Dawkins exhibits a history of making statements that use the guise, and I'm quoting them here uh, a, a history of making statements that use the guise of scientific discourse to demean marginalized groups and approach antithetical to humanist values. Now, What's notable, and what I think many uh, commentators noticed about this latest decision, is that the AHA, in their very brief statement uh, revoking this award from Dawkins, they don't explain what's wrong with what he's doing. They they merely reported that he did this. They reported that he uh, did the, that he that he made this tweet, and that he questioned whether. And he, in effect, questioned whether or not it, people should be able to identify as whatever sex they like. Um, and that was enough. The, so it, it looks to critics, and it looks to me, uh, as though Dawkins has committed a sin of questioning a dogma, uh, even though the dogma seems to involve, at least ostensibly, some kind of double standard, some kind of contradiction. I mean, it's possible somebody could argue why there is no contradiction. But that's not what's being done here. So the AHA doesn't bother to explain why they think Dawkins is wrong. To point this double standard out, they simply cite the fact that he's pointed it out, and that's enough to revoke his award and to take, and to dethrone him from the uh, uh, the pantheon of of secular humanist sainthood, in effect. And and this isn't the only uh, example. This is just the most recent, and it's one that's I think particularly striking because. It's a, it's a nominally secular organization, which you know, has made its name in the past uh, as a critic of religious dogmatism. And yet here it is doing something that looks a lot like a uh, kind of excommunication ritual uh, on behalf of one of its former saints. And I think there were some other examples uh, that we wanted to talk about as well. Uh, you had a few, Ilan.
1: Well, just to add to what you're saying about what happened to Richard Dawkins, What I understand about the American Humanist Association is that they regard themselves as being guided by reason, explicitly, not as an accident or as an implicit point, as an explicit factor in their thinking and their decision-making, the values they want to put forward. And I think if I were in Dawkins' position, I would be galled at this because here's a scientist, whatever you think of his statement on Twitter, even if you agree or disagree with it, He is being treated in a way that you would expect that, that would be unsurprising if it came from a religious authority it would be very and it is shocking coming from an organization that puts itself out there as a as a voice championing the idea of reason and and that elevates people like him who are scientists and some of the other winners of this award are also scientists and intellectuals who explicitly engage and support sort of the enlightenment kind of values so And I think there's really a way to emphasize, so you characterize it as an excommunication practice. That's really what it looks like. And I think the, the, um, so this ties in with what we raised earlier. So there are, this looks like a religious phenomenon, this case with Dawkins. And yet, and this is in the context of declining church membership. And yet so here's a here's a way in which there seems to be religion still going on or religious behavior and yet and and particularly with an organization that claims to be non-religious and it is a counterpoint to religion so i think this is a really helpful illustration of the fact that church membership is a proxy for something It, it doesn't really tell you what people are thinking and here's a group of people who say they're not religious and this is where they're going I think it's useful to bring up here the observations. I, you mentioned a lot of intellectuals have observed this kind of thing, That there's one in particular that I've been following, John McWhorter, whose work I've I've read quite a bit of and I admire some of it uh, a lot. He is a linguist and a, a scholar. I think he's based at Columbia. One of the things he's been working on lately is a project that he's released in in uh, serial form on his website. It's basically a book that analyzes the what's commonly called the woke phenomenon. And his thesis in this new book, I've read the first few chapters of it that he's released, and he's talked about this elsewhere too, is that this is essentially a new religion, or it is a religious movement, despite the trappings of being secular, liberal, and, and, and so forth. And in other words, it's, it's coming from the so-called left side of the intellectual space, Uh, which is often associated with being secular, and yet it is, in his argument, a kind of religion. So one, just one thread out of this, and we can explore it further, is, so he indicates some ways in which this woke, and it's particularly the the perspective on race, and so the whole debate around race. He draws out the idea that there is, for people who are non-people of color, let's put it that way, uh, there is a kind of original sin with race. And the the, it stands in a in a if you spell it out, it's absurd, but it's often not spelled out. It's just understood. And the behaviors that you see from the woke enforcers in effect, or the inquisitors that are often going on, it's not spelled out, but this is actually what it would look like. And when you so it's really helpful to put it into words. So here's an example. Uh, And I think he, I forget where his source for this is, but it, it it's really capturing something important. So if you say that you're not a racist on this view, it actually turns out you are, you must be. Uh, if you try to understand the experiences of minorities, that's an important thing for you to be doing, but you mustn't appropriate, and this is a, a term that's very loaded, right? I'm putting it in quotes. You mustn't appropriate the cultures of other people or other groups. So engage, but don't engage. You, you, can, you can deny being a racist, and that's just proof that you are. I'll uh, just give one more example if if minorities uh, leave a neighborhood, that is gentrification, that's a bad thing. Um, and, you know, if the neighborhood improves and they can't, so there's all kinds of weird things about that. And this ties in with the idea of elevating race to a, a really prominent place in people's thinking. So the... Violation of any one of these positions, although you might call them dogmas or pieties, I'm not sure how you would map this on, but to violate them is to risk being excommunicated in effect. You are no longer a re- reputable person. This is part of what we've, we talked about this previously, Ben, under the, the heading of, not a useful term, but it's the common one, it's cancel culture, right, and I put that in air quotes. This is part of what is the, is the engine or the, the, the motive force behind it. You have said this, you must be racist. You cannot be a person that anyone engages with. You're gone. Uh, and this is constantly happening. So part of what McWhorter's analysis, which I find really intriguing, is this mapping of the woke phenomenon in detail as this is a kind of religion. And we have to understand it this way. Um, so I, I just yeah. to, to say it back to you. Yeah.
0: And, you know, we could, we could go on here. Like we, there's, there's I think more examples we could give from McWhorter about the woke phenomenon, but outside of that, even there's um, you and Keith Locke has just had a episode of this podcast last week where we were discussing much the same issue, except with regard to environmental alarmism. We talked about how people like Steven Pinker and, and, uh, Michael Schellenberger have, have written books noting that there's a kind of parallel form of religious fervor connected with environmentalism. So uh, the this, this movement is always predicting uh, one or another apocalypse. When that apocalypse doesn't happen, they don't uh, apologize for making a mistake. They continue to predict new ones and in defiance of the evidence of their past errors. And I mean, you even have kind of rituals uh, performed without any evidence that they do anything, recycling being the most obvious one here. Um, so these are just a few data points. We've got we've got uh, views about race in politics. We've got uh, environmentalism. Uh, we've got uh, the v- views about sex uh, that came up in the the recent controversy with uh, uh, with uh, Richard Dawkins. Something similar, I think, happened when when uh, JK Rowling tried to raise critical questions about the ideology around uh, transgenderism. But uh, again, the the point here is not even to say uh, that uh, these critics uh, of transgenderism or critics of environmentalism or what have you are right about everything that they say. Uh, It's more about, well, how are they treated? What happens when they give arguments for their view? Uh, Are they simply, uh, are they simply Dismissed and excommunicated as some kind of sinners, without explanation, uh, simply on the grounds of the content of their views, uh, or, or not. And, um, and I think there is definitely a uh, a kind of religious fervor in a lot of these a lot of these viewpoints. And that gets us to uh, somebody who observed this same kind of phenomenon, but but has a very interesting spin on it that we want to talk about. This is the uh, the article by Ashadi. Hamid, right, Ilan?
1: Yeah, this, this is an article I caught my eye uh, when it came out. So this is in the Atlantic. It's dated uh, in the April print issue. It was online uh, for a while. Now, he is a scholar of the Middle East and of a particular, particularly of Islam. And he also uh, studies religion and politics outside of that region. So he has a broad range of interests. The article is really worth reading. I don't agree with a lot of it, as we'll discuss. I think he's, he's, he's grappling with a phenomenon. He's trying to identify something. I think he's got some things right about what's going on, but I don't think the, the, the explanation is, is really sufficient or helpful in thinking about it. So one of the things he points to is that if people who are on this sort of secular uh, orientation, were thinking that the decline in church membership, the data points that we talked about at the beginning of the conversation, if they see that as a hopeful sign that people, and particularly politics, are going to be more rational, then they're mistaken. Because look at the sorts of things we're living through. So we've just been talking about some examples with Dawkins and others, and this whole woke atmosphere that is driving some of this. And his his point is really that uh, when organized religion fades in in taking church membership as the evidence for that. When that fades, it doesn't really go away. It it just gets sublimated or gets manifested in another way. So he he argues that, um, uh, let me just quote a bit from what he says here, American faith, it turns out, is as fervent as ever. It's just that what was once religious belief has now been channeled into political belief. Political debates over what America is supposed to mean have taken on The character of theological disputations and this let me continue the quote this is what religion without religion looks like end quote so he's making the case in this article that the political dynamics that we're seeing and that we've been just sketching out a bit are in effect the the impulse for religion or the desire for religion or the need for it channeled into politics and that he thinks is a very bad thing and uh, and there's reasons to think that it is a bad thing but not necessarily for the reasons he talks about so he gives examples we uh, uh, some of the kind of things we've been talking about so he talks about on the left there's this woke phenomenon as he characterizes it where there's he identifies there's the religious notions of original sin there's atonement there's ritual there's excommunication but the, all of these are, are repurposed or moved into a, a seemingly secular framework, and they're they're rolled out and used in that way. And then at the same time, and this is a, an interesting observation in the piece, he thinks that there's a counterpart to that on the intellectual scene coming from what you might call the, the, the political right. And he he talks about the sort of Trump-centric ethno nationalism that, that has kind of taken uh, center stage and he he thinks of them as draping themselves in the trappings of organized religion a little bit so they're not really detached from religion but that the result is that it it looks like a a, a revival of sort of a um sort of the same fervor but without necessarily all the trappings of religion so he thinks of of their being on both ends of the intellectual landscape if you want to think of it that way two kinds of uh, secular religious phenomena. Secular in the sense that they look secular, but in effect, if you think of them, essentially that's how they're behaving. They're behaving like religion. Yeah, I should just uh, mention
0: that, uh, especially about the, the Trump movement. I mean, there's, there's two dimensions of this. I mean, one is that Trump himself has tried to court evangelicals and their actual traditional religion. But even if you leave that aside, I think part of what Hamid is pointing out is that there's a there's a, a kind of secularized religion still evident in treating Trump as the savior, uh, and he's he's kind of the preacher at these sort of revival tent style meetings. Uh, you especially see this in the kind of QAnon phenomenon, where uh, he's he's thought to be kind of a literal savior against Satanists who are eating babies or whatever. Um, so. Yeah, I, I, I agree that the, that Hamid's article raises some very interesting questions about what's going on, and, and he's got his his finger on the pulse of something new that is happening in American society. We should ask some questions ourselves, though, about the way that he and others like him are trying to analyze this phenomenon. And certainly he's getting some things right here, that there's there are some real similarities between traditional religion and these new kind of political dogmas. I mean, they, they both definitely involve, they're, they're both faith-based in the way where you're, you're, there's certain doctrine that you kind of have to adhere to, otherwise you're kicked out. Uh, and even if you've, you've got you know good critical questions about it, um, both of them encourage this kind of trial, a tribalistic rallying around a certain figure, whether it's around Trump himself or around the various uh, figures on the woke left. Uh, uh, lately, it's been around martyrs, uh, I think. But um, So I think it's accurate to say that they have a kind of religious aspect, a religious overtone dimension to what they're doing. There's a kind of religious fervor. Um, Whether that makes them religion per se is something I think we should still talk about. But uh, I know you wanted to challenge something uh, a little bit about the way he's conceptualizing this phenomenon, even if uh, there's a real phenomenon there.
1: Yeah, I encourage people to take a look at the articles. It's not that long. It's worth reading. One of the things that comes out of it is, I think, suspicious or or definitely needs to be questioned. And that is a premise of his analysis is that, in effect, any deeply felt conviction that you might have is just a a form of religion it's just a he calls it he quotes somebody saying it's a sublimated form of religion not quite sure what sublimated form of religion really means but his view is that if it's meaningful and and deeply held and and, in a conviction then it's it basically it's religion so what what's striking about that is that leaves no room for anything that is a rational set of ideas which i i think it's a it's a not a surprising view that he holds, but it's disappointing because there's thousands of years worth of of philosophy that has been uh, offered throughout uh, mankind's history that is tempted to deal with the questions of of life, the big questions, and offer answers that are not based in religion. I think philosophy is the step forward from religion in the sense that it's, it's using reason to try to understand and answer these questions. So there's a kind of gap in the analysis where it's as if philosophy doesn't exist. It's never had any meaning in, in uh, human history. And it, this ties in with his analysis of what is distinctive about America. And he's, he puzzles over this because he says that America has a creed. And in a sense, it's true. America's founding was distinctively uh, based on a philosophic orientation that you can trace the philosophical influences that led the founding fathers to craft the founding documents the way they did the declaration of independence and the constitution and many of the features of those documents are shaped by deep thinking about political philosophy but for for hamid in this in this analysis it's well america is basically religious it always has been and the role that uh, enlightenment philosophy had in america's creed it's just not meaningful to him. It doesn't even read, register in this article. It would be interesting to ask him sort of what his actual view is if it's not represented in this article well. So part of what happens is that you get his view that it's a really sad thing that religion is on the, on the decline. Because on the one hand, we get sort of the woke mob. We get the the sort of the worst elements of people following Trump. And he, he laments both of these. And he doesn't think we should be cheering for that. And the implication is, well, if only we went back to a time when religious uh, religiosity was higher, church membership was higher, people were going to mosques. And so, and that doesn't really make any sense to me because the, if you think more broadly throughout human history, the more religion has had a role in politics and in human life, the, the more conflict there's been, the more friction and the more wars and more bloodshed there's been. That's just the, that is the story of, of human civilization. So there's a real question here is, he's taking for granted if you have a deep view, it's religion. There's no sense that there's a rational alternative in his view. And his implication is that we need to go back to some point at which there is more religion uh, in in human life. And that's just, it's not a helpful analysis because I don't think if it's not true and it would lead to other and different kinds of problems for us. So in terms of understanding this phenomenon, I don't think it's, it's really pointing in the right direction.
0: Yeah, I I mentioned before that I think there there is a real point to the comparison that he's making to saying that there is this religious dimension of these political dogmas. Uh, But in acknowledging that, I think it's still important to ask the question, okay, are they literally religions? And when when people say that they are literally religions, uh, I'm a little skeptical and I want to be critical of that because I know that. And I don't know if this is true of Hamid himself, but there are, I think, religious conservatives who will often point to uh, political phenomena they see on the left, whether it's whether it's multiculturalism or or environmentalism, and they'll say, these are new religions. And part of what they're doing there, and what I think they're trying to do, is they're trying to accuse these leftists of simply being hypocrites, because the left is supposed to be secular, and so when they themselves adopt a religious mindset, that's just a... Way to score a rhetorical point against them by calling them hypocrites. And it's also a way, I think, that religious conservatives have of calling out the fact that there are potential rival religions to their religious followers to warn them against the heresy or the apostasy of adopting one of these rival religions. And so we should be we should be careful when we look at these kinds of accusations because they may be, motivated uh, from that perspective. I'm not saying that I think that's what Hamid's doing. I'm not really sure how he identifies religiously or, or politically for that matter, but it's it's something to be on guard against. Now, when we look to somebody like John McWhorter, who himself, I think, considers himself to be some kind of liberal Democrat, I don't know where he stands uh, religiously either, but uh, it's it's less likely that he's making this kind of Uh, Move And in particular, I don't think he says that all ideologies are religions in the way that Hamid seems to be arguing, because I agree with you, Ilan, that that's a major distortion that it leaves out the uh, entire realm of rational philosophy and runs it together with religion. And to the extent that he can't see the difference, he's, I think, (laughs) buying into the same problem that he's criticizing. Um, the idea that there couldn't be arguments given for these kinds of positions. But in any case, even John McWhorter makes this same kind of point. And in his book, he he says, no, I'm not saying it's like a religion. I'm saying these new political doctrines, they actually are religions. And he makes an argument in his book about how if if an anthropologist from an alien planet were to come on the scene for the first time and compare these political movements to religions, that they wouldn't see any difference between the two of them. Uh, And again, I I do think that there are real similarities uh, for the reasons that we've cited. We cited a number of the really important and intriguing similarities. At the same time, I think it does make a difference that one of the things that is essential to religion is that it involves a kind of supernatural worldview. And that's not something that's true about these secular movements, whether it's wokeism or environmentalism. Uh, it doesn't say that there's literally another dimension where there's a supernatural being who's looking over us. Now, it, it might be that there are like proxies for that in these worldviews, like there might be a Gaia uh, figure in, in certain kinds of environmental ideologies, though certainly not all of them. Uh, and that's important, but it, it makes a difference that religion has this supernatural worldview attached to it. It makes a difference for the fact that it's, I think, easier for it to illustrate, sorry, to, to insulate itself from empirical refutation. Uh, that makes a difference for its staying power as a cultural force. Uh, one of the things that I think Leonard Peikoff uh, is, is uh, he makes a very provocative point in his dim hypothesis book to say that uh, part of the reason why the uh, religious ideologies were able to maintain political power for, you know, a millennia in, in Europe was precisely this fact that they were able to make, you know, completely arbitrary claims about an afterlife which could never be disproved and therefore able to, you know, keep the faithful stringing them along over the centuries. Whereas, you know, communism, for instance, was only able to hold on to political power for 70 years it was making predictions about what would actually happen on earth so that makes a difference whether it's got the supernatural worldview or not that said um these similarities are still very real and uh Rand herself had a had a perhaps a a broader concept that one could use to capture these similarities and it was the concept of mysticism she she said there were mystics of spirit which she identified with traditional religious supernatural worldview. But then, and this is something that I think threw a lot of her critics for a loop. She didn't, they didn't get why she was saying this, but she said, no, the, the communists, the leftists, the secular types, I assume she would group the contemporary versions of leftism under this as well, were what she called mystics of muscle. And so uh, even though they didn't believe in a supernatural dimension, they still believed that there was a kind of uh, ineffable form of knowledge that the elect could have. That would, that would give them insight into real morality. Uh, and, and so you have in communism, the dialectic process, uh, for instance, and you know, presumably now we have equivalents of that with wokeism, um, with, with the various racial and environmental ideologies that, are, that tell where their advocates have whatever intuition it is that informs them of the truth of their uh, basic principles, even though there's not scientific demonstration of it. So there is still, like, even when uh, these critics, I think, are overstating their case in saying these are literally forms of religion, I think, I do think they're still capturing something very important. There's certainly religious elements and aspects to these ideologies and these movements, and you might even argue that they're forms of mysticism, even if they're not a religious supernatural
1: worldview. Do, ben, I'm curious to, just to get your reaction to this thought. What Do you think it's helpful to separate out the, some of the trappings of religions, we, we, recognize religion. So if you go to a Catholic church, there's all sorts of pageantry about the mass, and there's the, the I think of those costumes, and just the books, and the, and the rituals, and that we think of that as part of a religion, or if you go to a mosque, there's the, the process of, you know, wash your hands and feet, and you go, and you get, you're positioned on the mat, and so, so those kinds of things from it's the 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 basic question of why do you believe in this? what is the basis for the claims that there's a supernatural being that he tells you to do this action that this is a, a virtue and this is a vice, and that this is to, you know I'm just trying to connect it to what you're describing in, in rand's conception of the mysticism because that, that seems like a broader much broader way of thinking than just oh you know, this religion has excommunication, this behavior has excommunication. So that seems like it's relevant and important, but it's not as fundamental as, what's your evidence for this?
0: Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that the, the ritualistic expressions that you see in both religion and in these secular movements, uh, part of the reason why these are evidence. Of a similarity is that they you would expect both of them to be effects of the deeper cause of this dogmatic approach to knowledge that that Ayn Rand called mysticism so like why do you need rituals why do you need uh you know loyalty to uh cult-like leaders well it's a way of demonstrating your faith it's a way of saying, I've been told to believe something, and to show that I believe it, I'm going to go through these motions, even if the motions don't have any obvious uh, you know, function uh, or any rational basis. Um, you know, the, it, you're a Catholic, you're supposed to believe that the, the host that you take during communion is literally the body of Christ, because a priest pronounces a blessing over it, uh, even though it's made of bread. And there's whole Catholic theologic doctrines that are, that are erected to explain the possibility of transubstantiation, of how something that's, bread, that's made of bread can be turned into human flesh, uh, even though it has all the sensible qualities of, of bread. Uh, and that, so it's an act of faith to engage in these rituals. And so you're demonstrating your faith by doing them, and you're showing that you're one of the, that you're one of the, of the in crowd. And that's, I think that's actually going to help us transition to the last um, big topic that we wanted to talk about, which is for more about Ayn Rand's analysis of this kind of uh, dogmatic tribalistic behavior, wherever you see it in our culture.
1: Yeah, I think that's a useful issue to raise, uh, because Ayn Rand's analysis of tribalism is is deep, and it's distinctive. I think it really stands out, and I, the reason I think it's it's helpful in thinking about the phenomenon we're talking about, and the, and the phenomenon is people who are behaving in religious ways—not necessarily following religion—and not sort of associating with a necessarily an institutionalized religion, but just behaving in ways that are um, dogmatic and non-rational, and in—I in, think—in both cases, group-oriented, and that's that's a feature that Hamid and Makorda, I think I haven't read all of Macquart's uh, serial yet, but. I don't think they really uh, see that as significant. I think it is because it has to do with uh, a big part of what is motivating people. So I, and that's why I think it's useful to think about tribalism in in our society as a way of trying to process what is going on with these, um, this mob behavior on both different sides of the political spectrum, or the political landscape, I should say. and. Rand's analysis of tribalism, we're just going to give a sketch here, there's, there's a lot to say about it, I've written about it, and, and obviously you should read her, her perspective first, and, and read chew on it, but the, the basic observation is that, contrary to what people think, tribalism, well, the, the desire to be part of a group and to lose oneself in a group, is not built in, it's not innate, it's not, you're not programmed to be a tribal member, as some even scientists today think is the case, it's actually rooted in a fact of human nature, which is you have a choice and either you activate your mind and, and guide your life according to your judgment, or you, you default to a passive state. You don't really take those steps. And if you're in that passive state, if you, if you make that default, then there's sort of a sequence of uh, steps that will lead you to, to still need direction even if you're not the one originating the direction and you, you need a sort of philosophic framework. That's the positive to put it, to put it that way. And when you lack that, you look for it somewhere. And where a lot of people go is to a group, a tribal group, because it gives you, uh, it gives you sort of a ready-made solu- solution to this problem, which is what am I going to do with myself? What, what is right? What is wrong? What should I, how do I navigate this world? And the the group gives you an identity. It gives you a a pseudo sense of self-worth because now I'm part of this group and it has all these things that are uh, sources of prestige or value or uh, uh, kind of helps to clarify who you are. And you answer, you you have answers because you get them from the authority, from the group itself, from the spokesman of the group. So that's sort of the the widest way of conceptualizing of what, what happens here in her... Her view of this. And I think that's really uh, an important feature of what's going on in the political landscape. When we look at the religious like, sort of dogmatic behavior with the woke phenomenon, and we look at it on the other side with the sort of nationalist, uh, Trump centered uh, perspective that you see, many people flocking to him, and the, the conspiracism uh, 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 example that you gave. I think it, it, some of it is people finding a group that they can identify with. That's not necessarily an innate group, like this is to do with your skin color, but it's something that they can gravitate to. And the, this is the key point. This is how it ties in with that observation you raised regarding mysticism. The way the conclusions or the, the guidance of the group operates in your mind, it's not only oh, yeah, I'm convinced this is the right thing to do. I'm convinced this is the truth. It's I've been told and I'm going to believe. And once it's held that way, it really just functions like a religious dogma. I mean, maybe religious dogma is redundant, but it's it, it really functions as it's non-rational conclusions. And then just a further point before we, I, I hand this back to you, Ben. The, part of what's fascinating about the way these sorts of ideas work on people, so if people accept a dogma, uh, for example, all white people are racist. That's one of the dogmas we hear from the woke people. I think it's it's false. It's clearly false. It's just not, not remotely true. But the, if you accept that just on someone's say so on the authority of a group that you think, oh, I, I'm just gonna take what they tell me because you're subservient to them, you've you've assimilated to this tribe, you haven't accepted it because of evidence. And if someone challenges you, you don't have evidence to, to justify. All you have is, well, I accepted it on authority. Why don't you? You should do the same thing. There, there's no argument that you can give because you didn't accept any argument. There's no Now, there could be an argument for it, but that's mm-hmm. not really how it stands in your mind. And that's really helpful for thinking about the dynamic of the way some of the members of these phono- these groups behave. So, uh, you know, there's there's a, a, a video that went viral. I believe it was from a school board meeting somewhere, maybe in New York City or one of the boroughs. Uh, I forget which one it was, where... A parent or was challenged on a claim that was it, it sort of comes out of the woke catechism, it comes out of the woke dogmas. And someone challenged her with, Well, help me understand why this is the case. And her response was, You have to read this book. If you haven't read this book by, I think it was the, the Kindi book, I think Ibrahim Kindi, or maybe it was the D'Angelo book, these, these best-selling books that are really pushing this particular view of race that are central to this moment. And her attitude was, well, if you haven't read the good book, I can't speak to you. It's it's for you to, and it's not that I can recreate the arguments I was convinced by, and then you can be convinced by those arguments. Just, this is the authority. You have to swallow it, and it's wrong for you to challenge me. And so you can see how that really, and it goes to the emotional, like the whole thing is like she's erupting, and it's the emotional temperature of this video is just it's crazy. And I think it comes from feeling... Well, I don't know. I don't have any basis for this. It's a dogma in my mind. I mean, if you were putting it into words in, in their sort of in, in their in their mind. And I can you can see how that would manifest in, a, in both anger and resentment, over and above what you might say is justified by some claim of injustice or some claim of, of wrongdoing. I think you can put those aside. It's more, I think, often driven by this feeling of being cornered. I don't know how to answer this. There is no rational answer. I'm just going to emote and, and spew anger. Uh, so I, I think just to put, summarize the point that there's a lot of, uh, a lot to be gained from thinking about Ayn Rand's analysis of tribalism and how it's essentially a cognitive issue. It's a cognitive default, how that leads people into those, these kinds of groups, how they then are, are, are guided by authority and they're obedient to authority and that sort of what they believe is a set of dogmas, what the tribe tells them. And that, that then this kind of helps to understand a little some of the ways in which people behave when they're put on the spot of it. go, why do you believe this? And there is, there is no rational answer because they never accepted it for rational reasons.
0: Uh, There's a lot to to pick up on there. Um, One thing I would note is that uh, to reflect back on the the criticism that I think you rightly made of Hamid, that he ran together all religion, all ideology, all uh, conviction with religion is uh, particularly unfortunate, especially since what it has the effect of ignoring is the existence of rational philosophy. And it's precisely the the ignoring of philosophy that is is part of the problem that leads to tribalism in Rand's view. Her view is that, as you mentioned before, uh, people have a choice about whether to be active thinkers or to be passive thinkers. They have a choice about whether they're going to ask questions about why they believe what they believe. They have a choice to try to get a a broader understanding of the things around them and of the big question, the the answers to the big questions in life, or they can just kind of passively absorb the viewpoints of others around them. And that's, that's her reason for thinking that we all need philosophy is, in effect, we, we end up adopting philosophic views, whether we uh, know it or not. And so what we our only choice is whether they're going to be rational or not. People who default on that choice, who end up just absorbing the views of the people around them, are the ones who have what she calls an anti-conceptual mentality. They're the ones who then go in for tribalism because not being able to answer the big questions themselves, they default to the answers that are given to them by other people. And Ilan, you were talking about the the phenomenon of of the, the type of person who, when challenged, uh, sort of backs into a corner, gets defensive, uh, yells a lot, invokes sacred texts, and this is something that Rand specifically analyzes in her discussion of tribalism. She talks about how it's a sign of the fact that they they seek safety and comfort in uh, their membership in a group, and when someone doesn't follow the the rules group the, the rules of the group, all they can do is lash out at the other uh, for fear uh, that this is somebody who challenges in effect, their default. And one of the reasons that we need philosophy in particular, and one of the reasons Rand thinks we need philosophy in particular, is that we need answers to the big questions about morality in life. And we'll either answer those for ourselves, we'll either be able to come up with principles that we can demonstrate and connect to reality ourselves, or again, we'll end up, absorbing them uncritically from the people around us and on that point um there's a there's a quotation I definitely want to put on screen where Rand understands what tribalism and what the tribalistic mentality means for morality uh she says it's obvious why the morality of altruism uh and I'll say a word about what that is in a minute is a tribal phenomenon she does too Prehistorical men were physically unable to survive without clinging to a tribe for leadership and protection against other tribes. The cause of altruism's perpetuation into civilized areas is not physical, but psycho-epistemological. That's speaking to the psychological uh, issue we've been talking about before. You're automatically going to absorb these answers if you're not trying to answer them for yourself. The men of self-arrested perceptual mentality are unable to survive without tribal leadership and protection against reality. The doctrine of self-sacrifice, that's what altruism is, does not offend them. They have no sense of self or of personal value. They do not know what it is they are asked to sacrifice. They have no firsthand inkling of such things as intellectual integrity, love of truth, personally chosen values, or a passionate dedication to an idea. One of the things I think is interesting about this passage is, well, first it shows if you default on thinking philosophically yourself, you don't think that rational philosophy is even an option to consider then as with all other issues, you're going to absorb your moral ideas from other people. But especially because of the fact that uh, you are afraid of thinking for yourself and want to be told by others what to think, Uh, the ideas about morality that you accept are going to be particularly conducive to that need. Uh, They're going to be ideas that say, thinking for yourself isn't that important. Standing up for yourself isn't that important. You should just go along with the crowd. You should give up your own concerns, your own critical questions, your own interests, if the crowd demands that you do it. And of course, uh, I hope it's clear by now to people listening that, that that's exactly the kind of demand that is being issued by these various political dogmas that we've been talking about. That's the demand that's being issued you know, against uh, Richard Dawkins when he raises a critical question about uh, transgender ideology. And it's it's not it's not that there's even an, a counter argument that's given to him. It's just that he's made a he's committed a sin, and the cardinal sin has been thinking for himself, asking a critical question, making an argument for himself that goes against what other people believe, and he's supposed to sacrifice his own thinking out of deference to the comfort and the feelings and the consensus view of other people, and uh, so. At the root of this kind of religious mentality that we've been talking about is this kind of tribalistic view of morality, where what's moral is giving up what you believe and what you value for what other people demand. And it's, of course, the the view that you would expect when people are afraid to think for themselves in the first place. That's the view of morality they're going to accept as well. I don't know if we wanted to say any more about uh, Rand's views on that issue. Ilana, maybe we, should, maybe we should go to questions at this point.
1: Yeah, we can, we can bring in more during the questions Let's see what people are asking. Uh, thanks to all for being here. Thank you for those of you who are on the Super Chat, and we appreciate your, your uh, donations and support for the channel. It's, uh, it's great to see. So I'm going to look at some of the questions. Do you have them handy, Ben?
0: Yeah. Um... One simpler question that came up from YouTube was, who are the priests of this new church? And I, mean, I think, in part, we've started to answer that question. Um, you know, there are uh, there are texts that are invoked uh, uh, on the left in, as sort of sacred texts. So we, we mentioned uh, Ibram Kindi and, uh, um, and, and, and D'Angelo. I can't remember her first name. Um, you know, are they priests in the exact same sense that uh, Catholic priests are priests? Well, perhaps not exactly, and there are differences in these movements. But it certainly does seem like, for some people at least, who invoke these texts, that they're treated as uh, kind of authority figures. Uh, and I think, in some cases, you know, these figures are actually making—they're making arguments for their perspectives. You can. Raise questions about whether their the arguments are any good. I don't even know if they're being asked to if they're asking to be treated as authorities. But certainly there are people who are treating them as authorities, whether that's what they want or not. Um, and you know the, the same is probably true uh, when you look at environmental the environmental movement. Uh, that uh, I'm not sure. so uh, the the clear example here would be or the you know the closest. Example of somebody who'd come to being a kind of authority figure would be Greta Thunberg, who is who is I think venerated by some people as a saint, uh, as a as a kind of um, oracle, uh, who is and especially evident because she's she's a child and she hasn't studied uh, these the scientific questions in in a great level of detail. She's she's got no academic credentials. Um, but she's held up as a kind of saintly figure uh, for for the sake of reverence. you know it's it's one thing if you're listening to what an environmental scientist has to say about climate change but if if like the center of your veneration is Greta Turnberg, that starts to look a lot more like a kind of priestly figure. And if you had examples of your own.
1: I was going to make a comment about the question and the way we often think so it's, a, it's an interesting thing that we we look for we take religion as a kind of a familiar phenomenon and then we look for well what's the analog to this who is the priest of this new church and you made some interesting points earlier in the conversation about how it, you know pushing back against the mcquarter's analysis which is to treat it as a full-on religion it's it's useful to ask what are these if if you take the best Sort of most sophisticated intellectual form of, sort of the woke phenomenon. I think that's probably what you get in those books. Well, but maybe, maybe that's too charitable. But I, let's just say, for the sake of argument, that's what it is. What? How should one think about these? And I and I think religion is a concrete under a wider uh, issue, which is it's an it's a primitive, I think, groping attempt to try to answer some fundamental questions about life and the the actual field that should deal with this is philosophy but one of the things and this i want to bring in the point from ayn rand on this which is to think about philosophic ideas or ideologies just sets of ideas that are trying to grab at some questions maybe they're not full philosophies maybe they're more like religions maybe they're more primitive than that but to think of them as they're not all new they're not at all neutral to human life they all have va- like a, a a moral valence they have some value they're either positive or negative they're either good for human life or they're not good for human life and i just want to provoke people and, and suggest that they go and explore rand's analysis further because one of the things she says is that when you're looking at these sorts of things like a new ideology that comes on the scene or a new sort of, uh, intellectual phenomenon like this is to treat it as a philosophic detective. She has a fascinating article. We'll put a link to this at the end of the the discussion. And one of the points that comes out here, and we were talking about this the other day, Ben, and it's that she has a devastating analysis of what she regards as irrational philosophies or irrational ideology. And that is that that it's, I think it's that they have a certain goal in mind and the goal is really bad it's to exert control over human people. And and, and the philosophy that itself is it is a, a means of rationalization for something. So there's an ulterior dimension to it. There's an ulterior goal. And that goes to some of what you were raising. Uh, I think it's some tantalizing points you raised about the psychological dimension of this, which sort of really intersects with the philosophy, which is there's a psychological motive and so, so the main thing I wanted to raise here is that when we think about these, like it, yes, it's helpful to think of them as analogs to religion, but let's step back and say, what is a religion? What what are these irrational non-rational ideologies? And how should we think of them? And, and And part of what I find fascinating in Rand's analysis is she has a deep account of what an irrational philosophy is for. It's not just an accidentally wrong thing. It's often the case that it's, no, someone created this. And the, the outcome has a certain purpose, and it's, it's a devastating, devastating account. Yeah, and, and part of one of
0: the reasons why I thought that was an interesting point to think about was, was that you can see... That it's, I think there's further evidence for the fact that irrational philosophies are systems of rationalization for base or psychological motives. You can see more evidence for that in the fact that, well, when, when a religion starts to lose cultural, political power those same psychological insecurities or whatever, they're not going anywhere necessarily. and so some other ideology, some other movement pops up to serve the same kinds of purposes. Uh, and I think that's what part of what you're seeing in uh, the transition from uh, traditional religion to these political do- uh, doctrines. That actually connects somewhat to another question that came up in the in YouTube. Can you please comment on whether there are metaphysical on whether there are metaphysical similarities between traditional religion and political or social religion, or is it only similarities in the political and social levels? And I think there are. I, now I, I mentioned that I think there is an important difference between traditional religion and these political doctrines, insofar as the first involves belief in a supernatural dimension and the, and the second doesn't. But that doesn't mean that there aren't any further uh, similarities as to their view of the universe. And here's one in particular that is relevant to the way in which these different ideologies will still serve as rationalizations uh, for uh, psychological motives that are are suspect. Determinism. Most of these viewpoints are deterministic. Most of them deny the existence of free will. Religion does this prominently in spite of what some religious people say. If you think there's a a omniscient supernatural being who has control over the universe and has foreknowledge of everything that's going to happen, it's virtually impossible. I think it is impossible to reconcile that with real human free will. Uh, And of course, original sin is an expression of this idea, the idea that we're all born sinners. Um, Likewise, on the left, there's, uh, I mean, Marxism is famously Deterministic. It says that we're all products of our our economic and class interests, and of course, you see now uh, versions of that in the various kinds of uh, racial ideologies, where we're all products of our our ethnicity. We're products of the 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 structures of oppression that have treated members of one ethnicity or another in different ways. Uh, these are all forms of determinism. They all deny the existence of free will. Interestingly, Ayn Rand thought that the big problem with racism was that it denied free will and said that we're all products of our race or our biology or uh, uh, whichever equivalent you want to talk about. And part of the reason that philosophy, in her view, invokes determinism is to rationalize away those who don't want to take responsibility for their own choices. Uh, it's it's a way of abdicating your own moral responsibility. It's very clear in the case of religion. If if you get to every time you see and you get to say, ah, we're all sinners. I can't help it. Nobody's perfect. Um, that's part of what's going on there. I think it's you see versions of that in the the left-wing political doctrines too.
1: And before we I know we, we should be wrapping up soon, but let's take a, one more minute, maybe. can do you want to offer a quick thought to this question from the super chat um, relating the discussion today to Ayn Rand's essay, Requiem for Man. Maybe you could just give us 30 seconds on what Requiem for Man is about and then if if you have any comments on the relationship.
0: So this was an essay she wrote in the 1960s uh, critiquing one of the papal encyclicals, uh, Populorum Progressio. I can't remember which Pope wrote it, but this is the one that called for uh, universal uh, global statism, uh, welfare statism, massive redistribution of wealth from uh the rich nations to the poor nations and so i don't remember the essay well enough right now to say more about the specific parallels i mean obviously there's she would say that uh, this is a clear expression of a religious mentality coming from the religion uh, from the religious morality of of altruism of self-sacrifice um, but she also has a lot to say in that essay about the psychological motives of the church and what it reveals about them and about their hatred for people of ability and their hatred of rationality, that it would demand this kind of sacrifice, which I think that's then a further instance of this point that uh, irrational philosophies or systems of rationalization. You often see that kind of analysis uh, coming from her when she's talking about religion. You see it in Requiem for Man, you also see it in her essay of Living Death. Where she analyzes the church's views about contraception and abortion, which she thinks uh, are also rationalizations for deep hatred for human self-esteem, uh, and uh, there's a there's a lot to explore there, but that'll it'll have to suffice for now, I think.
1: Well, thank you all for your questions. Uh, we we'll collect all these. We're having a a Q&A next week and we'll try to incorporate whatever questions we weren't able to get to that are of general interest. Um, So maybe we should wrap up here, Ben.
0: Yeah, let's uh, share some resources that we have, uh, some of the things we mentioned in passing. Uh, A couple of essays by Ayn Rand, both from the book, Philosophy Who Needs It? And we talked today about how she thought the need for philosophy was so central. It was a need that uh, tribalist mentalities are defaulting on. One of those essays was The Missing Link, where she, I think, lays out her most uh, uh, systematic analysis of the tribalist mentality, also philosophic detection, which we mentioned earlier, uh, where she talks about how irrational philosophies are systems of rationalization. That's all in philosophy who needs it. Uh, There's also a really great essay that uh, Ilan wrote a couple of years ago, I think, called The The Virulent Pull of Tribalism, and this was if I remember correctly, Elon analyzing some recent analyses of tribalism uh, along the lines of the people who say that it's just an innate instinct we're all born with, and you explain the difference between that view and Rand's view that tribalism is a default, where we admit what that takes over when we don't choose to think actively and philosophically for ourselves. So, those are some resources to check out more about the, the topic of tribalism. Also, a few announcements. Uh, about upcoming episodes uh, next week we are going to be having on this very episode uh, uh, a, a d- d- we're going to be talking we're going to be answering your general philosophic questions we've already received some of these from you uh, if you if you have more questions that you'd like to suggest questions about objectivist philosophy as such please send us an email I'll give you an email address later uh, when we're wrapping up, but uh, we're still collecting questions and it's not too late to send us your questions if you've got them. That's Wednesday, May 5th, same time as usual, same time slot as usual New Ideal Live. And last but not least, if you have questions about material that came up today, or if you have questions you'd like to submit to that Q&A episode that we're doing next week, send us an email at newideal at We read all the emails that come in. We try to answer many of them. I suspect that even the questions that we don't answer uh, for next week's episode that are sent in, uh, I will try to at least send a brief answer to eventually anyway. Though they're building up right now, so it's going to take me some time to do that. Um, but that's that's all I've got for today. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. Thanks, Elon for this very interesting discussion. Uh, this will conclude our episode, but we will see you all momentarily on Clubhouse for more discussion. Thanks. You've been listening to New Ideal,